Our scripture reading uh, this morning is going to be Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 15 through 17. If you're using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 15, beginning on page 877. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 15. This is the very word of God. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we come before you humbly this morning, acknowledging that it is by this imperishable seed of your word that we have been born again to everlasting life, and recognizing that it is only by the pure milk of your word that we will grow up in our salvation. And so we ask that according to your promise, that your spirit would attend to the preaching of your word here this morning, that he would cause my words to be faithful and true, bold and clear, and that he would cause them to bring forth much fruit in the lives of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This familiar account is is brief, but we really have three scenes as we work our way through the text. First, we have the parents who are bringing their children to Jesus. We're told even their infants, they are are bringing them to Jesus that he might touch them. Second, we have the disciples who are watching the parents bring their children and who, after a while, come to the conclusion that this is a waste of their master's time. And so they rebuke the parents for bringing their children to Jesus. And third, we have Jesus responding to his disciples, calling them to him and saying, listen guys, don't do that. Don't, don't rebuke these parents. Do not hinder them from bringing their, parent, their children, but let the children come, for to such belong the kingdom of God. This morning I want us to consider this text according to those three scenes, asking first, what is it that we are to learn from the parents' example? What are we to learn from these parents as they bring their children to Jesus. Then we're going to ask, what do we learn from the disciples' mistake? What do, we, what do we learn from their improper response to these parents? And then finally, what do we learn from Jesus himself? What do we learn from Jesus' instruction as he teaches his disciples why he would have the children come? So let's begin with the parents. What do we learn from the parents' example? Luke tells us that these parents are bringing even their infants to Jesus, and they are bringing them to Jesus that he might touch them, that he might lay their hands upon them. And so you have to ask, what is it that these parents are after? Why are they bringing their children to Jesus in this manner? And it seems clear that they are bringing their children to Jesus that that he might bless them, that that he might give some sort of blessing to them by laying his hands upon them. Notice the the text doesn't say anything about disease or disability. In other occasions, we we saw people bringing those who were sick, those who were lame, those who were in need of help. We saw them bringing these people to Jesus that he might 
heal them. But that's not what the text says. These parents are not bringing their children to Jesus that they might heal them. Rather, he is, they are bringing them to Jesus that Jesus might bless them. They want Jesus to lay their hands upon the children because they believe that Jesus laying their hands on them will confer some sort of blessing. Now, to our modern ears, that sounds a bit superstitious. And probably there is some measure of, of superstition here. These, these parents don't fully understand who Jesus is. They, they don't fully understand what it is that he has come to do. They don't fully understand the way that, that blessing works. But I would contend that neither do we. They may have over-believed uh, in the, this blessing. They may have misunderstood how it is conferred. But if anything, we go to the opposite extreme with our modern sensibilities. We, we don't really understand what blessing is. I've heard some people describe blessing as an encouraging word. It is saying something nice about someone that, that motivates them to be the best that they can be. You bless someone when you remind them of the truth, when you, when you tell them that you're a true child of God, or that you've been justified, or that you've been adopted. When you, when you say these truths to people, when you remind them of, of these good news truths, you are somehow blessing them. Speaking a good word to them is, is all that a blessing is thought to be. But of course, a blessing is, is more than that. Closer to the truth are those who who think of blessing as a prayer. A blessing is a a petition to to God asking that He might work good for for this or for that person. That that He might bless your children by working good for them. Or that He might bless this church by by working good for us. This is, of course, closer to the truth because it is God who blesses. But a blessing is even more than a prayer. A blessing is a spiritual gift authorized and empowered by God. It is a a true gift. It It is a gift given. Now when I pronounce the benediction at the end of a service, of course, I have no power to give you any gift. I can speak an encouraging word, but I can't do much more than that. But when I pronounce the benediction, nevertheless, I am truly bestowing a blessing because God has authorized me to do so. He has authorized me to to give a true blessing to His people. It is a blessing that He says, when you you pronounce them, the the gift is given. As I said, I, I can't do that myself, but God can do it. And he has chosen to do it through ministers of his word. The the benediction is a blessing. It is the, the bestowment of a true, real, spiritual gift to God's people. Blessings are real. We have a God who blesses. We have a God who gives good gifts to his children. And that is exactly what these parents are after. They understood that God is a God of blessing. They understood that God is a God of gifts. And they wanted those gifts for their children. They had heard the stories about Jesus. Some of them may have even seen Jesus' ministry firsthand. They had, they had seen the mighty works that He had done. And therefore they knew... They may not have known fully who he was, but they knew that he was a man from God. This is what Nicodemus says in in John chapter 3. Remember Nicodemus, the man who who came to Jesus at night? 
He, he was part of the, the ruling class. He didn't necessarily want to be seen associating with Jesus. But nevertheless, he, he came to him under the cover of darkness. And he said, listen, we know that you are from God. Because only a man from God could do the things that you are doing and could speak the words that you are speaking. We know that you are from God. That's what these parents knew. They knew that that Jesus was a man from God and they wanted Him to bestow upon their children God's blessing. The question we have to ask ourselves is, is simply this. What are we to learn from their example? And I think their example provides a a true challenge to parents today. In light of the example of these parents, we must ask ourselves, what are we doing to secure God's blessing for our children? Maybe more than ever before, parents today are concerned about securing the good of their children's future. In fact, for for many parents, this is the the sole focus of their lives. I've heard stories about parents signing their children up for the right preschool the day that they were born, just to make sure that they would get into the right schools, the right preschool that would lead to the right elementary school, that would lead to the right high school, that hopefully one day would lead to the right college. Parents are concerned about securing their parents, their, their, their children's futures. They, they want to make sure that they get the right lessons, that they, they know how to play the right instruments, they know how to speak the right languages, they know how to play the right sports, that their, their resume is filled with the right extracurricular activities, and on and on and on. Parents are willing to make great sacrifices to bring to their children some good, some perceived blessing. I remember hearing the stories as a, as a kid about Tiger Woods and about how his dad spent you know, nearly a third of their income, their yearly income, getting him to golf tournaments. He was willing to make great sacrifices for the sake of the future of their children. But of course we must ask, do we make the same sacrifices? Are we willing to go to the same extremes to bring our kids to Jesus? Now of course we're not bringing them to to Jesus physically. They're not going to physically sit on Jesus' lap. He's not going to physically lay His hands upon them. But what links will we go to? What sacrifices will we make? To bring our children to Jesus. Are you more likely to to miss a game or to miss Sunday school? Are you more likely to to choose a second traveling team or Wednesday night Bible clubs? Are you more likely to, to skip a music lesson or family devotions? I know that those questions are, you know, touchy, that they can be a sound even legalistic, and we we need to guard against that. We we don't need to give anybody the impression that merely going through the motions, that merely uh, showing up and sitting in a chair is, is somehow beneficial, somehow confers a blessing. But nevertheless, they are fair questions. They are questions we must ask. What do your habits reveal about your priorities for your kids? What do the choices you make reveal about what you think is most important in their lives? 
These parents didn't fully understand who Jesus was. They didn't fully understand what Jesus had come to do. But they were committed to bringing their children to Jesus. How much greater ought our commitment to be given what we know? We know who He is. We know what He has done. We know what He is going to do. How much greater ought our commitment be to bring our children to Jesus? So we must face the question. We must face the question, is our greatest desire that our kids would know and love Jesus with all their heart? Or is our greatest desire that they get into the right school? Or that they get the right scholarship? I think these are the questions that these parents challenge us to face. But the disciples also challenge us. They they challenge us sort of in an inverse way here. And so the second question that I want to ask is, what do we learn from the disciples' mistake? We're told that when they saw these parents bringing their children to Jesus, they rebuked them. And we know that this was a mistake because Jesus corrected them. Jesus called them to himself and said, let the children come. Do not hinder them. And so again, we're forced to ask, what is it that we learn from their mistake? But to answer that question, we must first understand why they made the mistake. What is it that they were thinking? It seems fairly clear to me that the disciples probably thought they were protecting Jesus. They they probably thought they were doing something admirable, something honorable. No doubt they thought it was a a waste of Jesus' precious time to engage these parents and to, to deal with these little children. After all, infants couldn't very well receive Jesus' teaching. They couldn't understand what Jesus was was saying. They certainly couldn't obey his commands. They were, after all, infants. Maybe not newborns. The the word is more broad than that. But but they were young children, toddlers. They, They offered Jesus no true value as disciples. And so the disciples themselves probably thought it would have been better if these parents would have come back later, if they would have brought their children later when they were older, when they they offered Jesus more. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, is what's wrong with their thinking? What's wrong with with what they are are doing here? And it seems that, that they are not thinking properly about whom Jesus came to bless and whom he came to serve. You see, if the parents' example challenges us to consider our priority for our children, the priority that we place upon Jesus' blessing, the mistake of the disciples challenges us to reconsider what we believe to be the prerequisites of Jesus' blessing. What is it that we believe a person needs in order to be eligible for Jesus' blessing? What is required of someone if if Jesus is truly going to work good for them. Do they have to offer Jesus some some minimum level of service? Do they at least have to have some minimum level of of potential in order to be worth Jesus' time? Now, at a theological level, we all know the answer to that question. We all know, of course not. Jesus came for the sick, not for the healthy. He came for, for sinners, not for the righteous. But how easy it is for us to begin to think the way the disciples think. See, the, the disciples didn't think it was a waste of time for Jesus to be with them. And yet they thought it was a waste of Jesus' time to be with these children. 
Clearly, they must have thought that they offered Jesus something that these children did not. Somehow, they thought of themselves as more worthy of Jesus' blessing. And how easy it is for us to think the same way. It's easy for me as a pastor to to see some people as more worthy of my time. Sounds horrible, but it's true. I can, in my natural mind, I can fall into that trap. I can remember when I was doing RUF at the University of North Carolina in Asheville. And I can just tell you that the students that I spent most of my time with were were marginalized students. They were students on the edges. And that was not because I sought out the students on the edges. It's because that's who would give me the time of day. That's who would talk to me. That's who would allow me to minister to them. But I often wondered how much better my ministry would be if I could just minister to the right students. If I could just have uh, access to the strategic students. You ever thought that way? We still do it today. I've heard so much about the, the, the importance of planting churches in the cities because that's where the strategic people are. I've heard so much about getting the right influencers in your church. It's easy for us to think that some people are more worthy of our time than others. What about you? Would you be disappointed If the sanctuary were full, but full with the wrong people. And who would those wrong people be? Who would the right people be? I think they're questions we have to wrestle with. I I thank God that here at Trinity, we invest a lot of time and energy into ministering to our children, into bringing our children to Jesus. I thank God for that. I I know, and I'll just sort of say it now, I I know that sometimes having kids in our worship service can be a distraction. And I know for some of you that's, that's hard to get past. Well, get past it. Because I am glad. I am glad that they are here. I am glad that they are in the worship service. I am, I am glad that they are learning the rhythms of worship. I am glad that they are learning to, to sit under the preaching of God's Word. It is good for families to worship together. It is good for, for, children to bring, for families to bring their children to Jesus. And yes, it is a distraction that some of us have to deal with. That's okay. It's a sacrifice we're willing to make. I, I thank God that here at Trinity we bring our children to Jesus. But we must ask ourselves, yes, we we value ministry to children, but are there others that we regard as a waste of time? Are there others who, who we regard as unworthy of our precious ministry resources? It might be easy to think that about prisoners. After all, they're not going to come to church, they're not going to tithe, and yet, how good it is to see God's grace at work that we're sending ten men into the Bledsoe County Prison. That is good. That is a good thing, that they are going, that they are going to minister, that they are going to to take the gospel. That is the ministry that we are challenged to by these verses. We must ask ourselves, are we willing to minister to whomever Jesus brings, to whomever Jesus weaves into the fabric of our life? Whether they be rich or poor, whether they be white collar or blue collar, whether they be young or old, whether they be married or single, whether they be black, white, Hispanic or Asian, it does not matter. God's blessing through Jesus Christ is for all those who know their need of Him. And we must be ready to minister. We must be ready to be agents of His blessing. 
to whomever he brings through our doors, to whomever he places on our streets, to whoever he puts in the cubicle next to us, to whoever he weaves into the fabric of our lives. We must not make the mistake of the disciples. And we must avoid that mistake remembering the words of Jesus. That's the final thing that I want us to see in this passage. Here in this passage, Jesus gives very clear instructions to His disciples. It's not exactly a rebuke, but it's, but it's clearly a correction. He says to His disciples, let the children come. Do not hinder them. The disciples, as we've seen, were trying to, to keep these parents from bringing their children to Jesus. And Jesus says, stop. Let the children come. But then he gives us two reasons why the children should come. Two reasons why they should not be hindered. And I want us to look at both of them this morning. First, he, he says, for to such belong the kingdom of God. In other words, the disciples are, are not to hinder the children from coming to Jesus because the kingdom belongs to such as these. So we have to ask ourselves, what, is, what does Jesus mean? In what sense does the, the kingdom belong to children? We, we don't believe that the kingdom belongs to children just sort of automatically by, by virtue of their age. That's, that's not what we believe. We, we do not believe in an age of innocence. That, that uh, term is used sometime, and, and we, we hear people speak that way as if, as if children were born innocent, and only later when they came to an age of decision did they become corrupt. That's not what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach that that children born in Adam are born sinners. They are born guilty. They are born under a sentence of death. They are born condemned because they are in their family. They They are in Adam. And so there is no age of innocence. There is no time before children were under God's wrath. In iniquity was I conceived. And so children are are not, the kingdom does not belong to children because they are innocent, because they are somehow undefiled by sin. They are born sinners. But if that's not what Jesus means, then, then what is he talking about here? Well, nor does he suggest to us that these children have some hidden virtue that we must learn to emulate. He's not pointing to children here as as having some inherent virtue that that somehow qualifies them for the kingdom. In fact, throughout the whole passage, what is on full display, what what is assumed by all involved, is that children are inherently unworthy, that they they have no real virtue, that they offer uh, nothing of, of great value. That is what is being assumed. And so what Jesus is saying is, listen, that it is those who know themselves to be poor. He uses that language elsewhere. In his Sermon on the Mount, to whom does the kingdom belong? It belongs to those who are poor in spirit. To those who know themselves to be spiritually bankrupt. That those who know themselves to to be unfit for the presence of God. Remember what we saw last week, the the parable of the the Pharisee and the the tax collector. The tax collector stood before God with his eyes on the ground, beating his breast, asking only for mercy. Why? Because he knew himself to be unworthy. Unlike the Pharisee, he did not point to his good works, nor did he promise to do more good works in the future. He simply asked for mercy. 
said, God, I have no works that I can offer you, either past, present, or, or future. I cannot bargain. I cannot buy. I cannot negotiate to receive your blessing. I can merely ask for mercy. And this is the place of, of children. My children don't always know it. Your children probably don't either. But what they receive is gift. What they receive is grace. They don't deserve it. They haven't earned it. But because the parents love them, because of the parents' great love for them, they delight to lavish good things on their children. And this is a picture of our God. We don't stand before Him as a worker, as one who has earned a wage. The only wage we have earned is death. And yet we can stand before God and ask for His mercy, even as a child asks for good things from his father, asks for good things from his mother. Because our God is full of mercy, because His his love runs deep, because it lasts from age to age, He delights to give those good things to His children. The kingdom belongs to children, not because they have some inherent worth, not because they are innocent, but because the Father has delighted to give it to them. You see, we don't earn our spot in the kingdom. It is a gift. And that's what Jesus is, is telling us here. When you begin to exclude certain people, when you begin to see certain people as unworthy of your time, by definition, you are assuming that you are more worthy. That's what the disciples were doing. I'm more worthy of, of Jesus' time. Well, the only reason you can make that statement is because somehow you think you offer Jesus something. And Jesus simply asks in return, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that is not the gift of God's grace? The kingdom belongs to children. The kingdom belongs to those who are unworthy, to those who are poor in spirit. It is the ungodly who are justified. And not only is the door open to children, but Jesus tells us it is open only to children. This is the second thing that that Jesus tells us. Look again at verse 17. Look what Jesus says. He says, truly I say to you, and notice that, When Jesus says, truly I say to you, you know he's about to say something that is both really important and counterintuitive. (laughs) It is something you need to know, and it is something you are likely not to believe. And Jesus says it right here. He says, truly I say to you, this is important. You need to know this, and you need to believe this, and you're likely to struggle with it. So what is this profound, unbelievable truth that that Jesus is about to teach to his disciples? Notice what he says. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter. If you do not receive the kingdom of God like a child, you shall not enter it. So Jesus is saying not only that the door is open to the unworthy, not only is the door open to children, but the door is only 
open to children. If you are going to receive the kingdom, you must acknowledge yourself to be a child. You must acknowledge yourself to be poor in spirit. You must acknowledge yourself to be unfit and unworthy. If you come before God demanding your due, demanding that He treat you justly, He will. And it will not be pretty. For what is it that we justly Deserve. It's one of the questions you're asked when you join the church. If you're going to join this congregation, if you're going to join any PCA congregation, one of the, the questions that you have to answer is, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving of His wrath? That's a hard pill for, for modern Americans to swallow. We will all admit that we are not perfect. That's not a problem. We we will all admit that we are not perfect. We will all admit that we are sinners. But it is hard for us to confess that we are justly deserving of God's wrath. I've told the story before, but but let me tell it again because it is so uh, illustrative of this point. I was teaching a, a middle school Bible study in St. Louis. Some 50 or 60 kids in the room. And I, I asked them, how many of you are, are sinners? And every hand went up. There might have been one or two exceptions, but from from my perspective, every hand in the room went up. Well, yeah, we're all sinners. They knew it. I then said, how many of you have sinned so badly that you deserve to be damned to hell forever? And all but two hands went down. Whoa, I'm bad, but I'm not like that. Now, we know better at a theological level. We'd get the answer right on the theology quiz, but do we know the truth about who we are? are. Scripture tells us that we have refused to acknowledge God as God. We have refused to to give Him thanks. We have grumbled and complained against His providence, and we have leaned upon our own wisdom, doing what is right in our own eyes. We are sinners. It's not that we got a 99 and He demands a 100. We have failed miserably before our God. We are sinners justly deserving of His wrath. Jack Miller, the the professor at uh, Westminster who was so passionate for evangelism, he used to say, I have good news. You are far worse than you ever imagined. Yes, you are a sinner. But you're more than a sinner. You are a sinner justly deserving of God's eternal wrath. Doesn't sound like good news, but it is. Why? Because exactly what Jesus says here. Jesus says the kingdom belongs to such as these. In fact, only such as these can get in. Only those who acknowledge who they are before God can receive the blessing of the kingdom because Jesus came to lay down His life not for the healthy, not for the righteous, not for those who needed a pep talk, not for those who needed a little bit of help, but Jesus came for sinners, justly deserving of His wrath. He became a curse for them that rather than the curse, they might know the blessing of God. We are sinners, deserving of wrath, but in Christ Jesus, our Savior, by His blood, we have been made heirs of the kingdom. 
We have an inheritance in the coming kingdom of God which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, whose glory goes on forever, satisfying completely both now and forevermore. This is the inheritance that is ours in Jesus Christ. And it is ours not because we are worthy of it, but precisely because we acknowledge that we are not and throw away all self-confidence and lean wholly upon Jesus' name alone. Not what my hands have done, but only what Christ has done opens the door to His kingdom. And because He has done everything necessary, and because all that is required of us is that we bow as children to receive His gift, That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do thank You for this grace. And we pray that You would cause this grace and this Gospel to put down deep roots in our heart and to bring forth abundant fruit in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.